Well, since episode one of this series, I've tried my best to give you the broadest range of stories and examples of the great Irish people at the top of global aviation. Michael Lillis is yet another great example of an Irishman who came from a completely different world and wound up in the business of flying. Today, though, Mick Lillis is known as the man responsible for leasing more than 180 jets with a combined value of six billion US dollars. Yes, you heard that right. Six billion US dollars. But in his life before this, he but in his life before he became an aviator, he spent two decades working at the levers of power in Leinster House, advising, researching, negotiating and creating historic agreements such as the Anglo-Irish Peace Agreement. In 1985, he was the chief advisor to the late Garrett Fitzgerald. And as you're about to hear, McLillis's skills for diplomacy, languages and negotiation saw him move through the corridors of power, not only in Ireland, but in Spain and later in the UN, in Geneva. And it was there, as the UN's youngest ambassador, he was spotted and recruited by the late Tony Ryan. I won't ruin it. I'll let Mick tell the story because he's really the only person that can tell these stories properly. It's The Flying Irishman, episode five. When I first floated the idea of doing an Irish aviator series, your name was one of the first that came up as being so not only instrumental in the place of Irish people and the Irish nation in aviation as understanding where that came from, the creator of a series known as the Pioneers of Aviation, an author, but also as somebody in terms of Irish history who has been at the levers of power during the negotiation of things like the Anglo-Irish Agreement. There's absolutely no way that we could have done this series without you, Mick, in many ways. How does it feel at 74 years old to be thinking now, I'm going to step away from this thing that has been such a huge part of both your life and your identity? Well, I'm not going to step away. I have another two months to go before I get to 74. So, okay. And it's not a death sentence, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it'll concentrate my mind as they used to say about foes who are going to be hanged. <laughs> I'm very, very flattered by the comments that you've made. And I, of course, feel extremely lucky to have been able to have the career I've had so far and to have been part of several important, let's say, ambitions and episodes in the way that Ireland has. I transformed itself mm. in the past, you know, 45 years. I was raised in West Cork on a small farm near Inchigila. Uh, was raised speaking both Irish and English because it was uh, what was called a Brack Gaeltacht area, meaning that the people spoke both languages. It, at the time, it was um, impoverished, as most of our <coughs> ancestors lived through these kind of experiences. And, you know, there were positives and negatives in that. The positives were that people helped each other out, even though they had nothing. Mm. The negatives were that there was a very high level of emigration from the families in the region and a lot of heartbreak. But the emigration also had a payback in the sense that, you know, it helped in the whole globalization of what it meant to be Irish. Sure. I guess, I guess you grew up with the idea that 
this wasn't it, that there was every no. chance that you'd cross the water to go somewhere else for a better life. Did anyone from what? your own family go? And what was your oh, first yeah. memory of maybe someone leaving? And what was your first memory of somebody returning? Well, it was actually even bleaker than that in a certain sense. And I'm not going to be, you know, one of these people who goes into telling misery stories. But the simple fact was that I was raised by my grandmother and there were hardly, there was hardly anybody else around to leave. Really? But my ancestors, uh, both on, in, from Cork and from Clare, they had all, they're scattered all over the place. Quite a number of them in Australia from the Clare side and in uh, New York and Boston on the Cork side. So, um, I'm, you know, we were all people of my generation were raised with those kind of frontiers in their minds. And you sort of expected to end up, you know, sending envelopes back with a few dollars in them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that didn't happen. I, I, I went, when my grandmother died, I moved to Dublin. I was raised, uh, then by my, my, my parents who, uh, circumstances were kind of, uh, unusual. But so I went to Sink Street School, CBS boy. And then I went to UCD and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship in those days. They weren't too easy to come by. Yeah. And I didn't have a great notion as to what I wanted to be. I think I was still thinking of emigration to be totally candid because, you know, jobs were, there weren't jobs around. And I finally, my father wrote up the application form for the Department of Foreign Affairs or External Affairs, it was called back in those days. He never told me that he did that. And he signed my name with his hand and pen. And I ended up getting, you know, called for interview and stuff when I got into the Irish Foreign Service, which I never expected would happen. And it has, that was a, that was a great experience, actually. Well, let's, let's start there then. I mean, that, that really is the, the beginning of it all for you and how uh, yeah. you get spotted by Tony Ryan. It's a chapter of your life that, you know, must have felt to a degree like winning the lottery or the sweepstakes of the time, because it jo- was a job as in those days. People did not think about moving career. They thought about no. jobs for life. And you had essentially hit the jackpot. You'd, you'd got your through by virtue of your father's ingenuity. You were now in the door. And the illegal, the illegal, illegal, illegally signing my name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <application> <laughs> That's did what you? happened. No, I mean, what, 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 I mean, just to kind of quickly pull together what, what happened then is happily, I, I have a small gift for languages and I had taught myself Spanish. I'm also, of course, a great girl would been very proud of mm. and love the, the language. But I, um, when I joined the department in 19, the end of 1966, I was very keen, like most of the, the people that were, you know, of my generation. And there were very few people around. There was, there were sort of like, the total foreign service, I think, was about 80 people. Today, it's more getting close to a 1,000. But I was trying to go abroad and represent our country and have the adventures that you want when you're that age. And I sort of barefacedly and shamelessly used my knowledge of Spanish to um, get ahead of the queue. And happily, there was a vacancy in what was the two-person uh, embassy we had in Madrid, and so in 1967, I was sent there. It was the period when Franco was the dictator. And I had uh, all kinds of interesting experiences 
Ireland didn't have much by way of trade with Spain, with virtually nothing. Mm. The odd bottle of whiskey was about as much as it was. <laughs> and actually, as, as seed potatoes, I think, was our principal export. And that was to the Canary Islands. We had all virtually no uh, trade. But I, you know, I found that that situation to be a kind of a challenge rather than, you know, something, an insurmountable kind of blockage. And we got going on, on a number of um, trade fronts. And I also got to know uh, the people both in the government. I was, uh, because I was on my own at one stage and uh, uh, Franco wanted to talk to an Irishman. And I was a lowly third secretary, which is the kind of cadet rank in diplomacy. And I got a call from the palace where, of course, he lived to say that he wanted me to please come to dinner that night. That was unthinkable for a young fellow in that business. So I trotted over. I was told that I had to go on a white tie. I didn't possess one, so I hired one for the night. Yeah. And I showed up at the palace and uh, met the Franco family. I was the only diplomat, I believe, including the American ambassador, the British, the Germans, the whole lot of them, who actually dined with the Franco family. And But the reason was he wanted his granddaughter to learn English in and he wanted her to go to, you know, predictably Catholic Ireland and all the rest of it. Mm. And he said to me, we would like you to escort my granddaughter to the opera tonight. So I, I didn't expect anything like this. But as you know, in Spain, they eat their dinners but after 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So I trotted out with this very friendly and nice uh, granddaughter of his to um, the opera. In his, at the time, I didn't even have a bike, but we went in his his car, which was a Hispano Suiza, accompanied by an escort of uh, security on uh, motorbikes. I mean, this was kind of like fantasy Unbelievable. stuff for me. Unbelievable. So went there, and such an opera was called La, it was La Boheme, and then we came back for dinner because it's the time that in those days, especially, but even still, the Spaniards eat at that hour of the night with the family. And uh, he explained to me at that occasion that he wanted to, you know, have uh, my help to find a school for his granddaughter to spend some time in Ireland. And then I was uh, invited back again to, on two other occasions. But during the day, during the day, you see what, what used to happen, because Spain was beginning to emerge from the dictatorship. It didn't happen until Franco died, of course. But there were stirrings and all the rest of it. And um, during the, the days, I and some other European young fellows, diplomats, we met with some of the opposition. And we met, for example, with Felipe González, later prime minister. At that stage, he was on the run. Mm. And he would, a young fellow, he would come around and meet with us in the, sometimes in my flat, because we had a very modest little flat. But the Spanish, the security authorities, never suspected that a young Catholic fellow like me would be in any way creating trouble by um, meeting the opposition at Madrid. So, I mean, I, that was all fascinating stuff and I had some of the What most. age were you at the time? I was about 23. Unbelievable. 23-year-old yeah. Mick Lillis yeah. in the middle That's of it. Franco's palate having dinner. I was, I was very, dinner. very lucky because my boss, not a very nice man, he's long gone, poor fellow, he was actually seriously ill, so he was away. So his number two, who was this child, young fella, 
myself, I was what was called the charge d'affaires, which in diplomacy means that you're basically, you're, you're empowered to do anything that your country can do, including declare war, by the way, <laughs> which I didn't do. So anyway, what happened after that was I came back to Dublin. Well, well let was, me ask you a quick question before we, yeah. go, before we go back, because what you're describing there about, you know, a civil service where there was only two people in this particular department and, you know, jockeying, jockeying your way up the queue through this self-taught Spanish that you, you'd done. It seems like another planet to the uh, bureaucracy that we all know to be the state now. What do you see as the similarities or the things that just didn't change between then and now? Uh, well, you know, I've always been not just dubious, but extremely skeptical of bureaucratic structures and impatient with them, even though, you know, I was right in the middle of one. And, you know, the Irish state, especially in those days, was extremely conservative and not just in the sense that we talk, think about, which is to say, you know, the sexual morality, etc., but in terms of risk-taking, you know, with the economy, with development. And there was, there had been around that time, some stirrings, notably T.K. Whitaker was the guy in the Department of Finance who got the, the economic plan on the move. But for the rest of us, I mean, you can, it's, it's hard to remember now uh, how conservative it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you a little story just to illustrate if you don't mind. 1966 was the 50th anniversary of the rising. And the department had produced a book. It wasn't, I, when you look at it today, you'd say it was very old fashioned. It wasn't terribly readable or interesting, but it was, you know, in homage to the, the, the people in the, the, the leaders of the rising, et cetera. And of course the executions that followed. And just when I joined the department, somebody called me and said, there were 50 leather covered copies of this book which we are keeping for visiting heads of state. Now they had been, there was quite, they'd some, they were done by young lads in the tech in Ringsand had, had, you know, done a job on producing leather covered uh, volumes of the book. Anyway, so I'm told hardly a day in the place to bring them up to Phoenix Park and get De Valera to sign them. So I, uh, Julie did that. I was like, I, I, I was told I could take a taxi, which was a huge luxury for me in those <laughs> days. I took the taxi, went up to the park, and, and there was a the president's aide de camp, who was a colonel, came out and he sort of said, you know, okay, and come back in two hours. And the next thing was, somebody said to him, ask, no, no, he said, ask Michael to come in. Devil era had my father's in Clare, and of course, Dev was. Lectures in Clare. So I was invited in and treated very nicely by De Valera and his wife. We had tea and it took De Valera two hours because he his, his sight was extremely poor. He had a very strong signature, but he had to focus for about mm. 10 minutes on each book. And so two hours later, I emerged. Uh, at this stage, my taxi bill must have been historic <laughs> by the standards of the Irish civil <laughs> service. And I go back to the department. And I hand the box, the package of books to a secretary in the information section where I was starting to work. I came in the next day 
and there was a need for one of the books. And I said to this lady, what about the books? And she said, what books? I don't want to make this story too long. No. But uh, somebody had stolen the books. It was actually the person that I had given them to, who was a great admirer of devs and who wanted to give them out to her family and friends. But I was the one carrying a cut with the baby or the, the absent baby. Yeah. And there was a sort of a court martial situation. And I was told I was going to be fired because I had uh, lost the, the books. And wow. the case went to the cabinet because in those days you could not fire a civil servant without the approval of the cabinet. There was, you know, jobs for life to mm. approach, to approach yourself. Uh, anyway, the thing went to the cabinet and the minister for finance, whom I didn't know from Adam, said, Asher, send him over to me for a while. And that was Charles J. Hawley, of whom I'm not the greatest fan, I have to say, but <laughs> nevertheless, he did me a great turn. So I spent six months in finance. That was the sort of, that why, was the atmosphere. Why did that we take were working? That's hilarious. Like, just as a side note, and we, yeah, you, you're right. It, it you is a make really it good illustrative tale of yeah. how small scale the whole scenario was, but, but also how, um, how he didn't really look down on you for what no, no, occurred it was, here. It was a very Took kind gesture for which I'm extremely grateful. And I got to know him slightly. And I got to know during the, the I, I was sent down to finance for six months and I came back later, but I got to know Charles J and I got to know Ken Whitaker and I mean, you know, they treated me very decently and, um, I was given jobs to do that, um, actually were quite, I won't say challenging. It happened to be 1967 was the year when there weren't too many, when there was a bit of spare cash for the budget and how he was looking for ideas to, you know, make the best use of whatever surplus he had. And he said to me, come back with some thoughts as to what we can do with, in those days, it might have been 2 million, mm. you know, God knows. But he it came out of that, the was, I looked through the Scandinavian budgets, their social programs and stuff like that, Sweden and Norway in particular. And out of that came the idea of free travel for older, uh, older citizens, a free uh, telephone service and free license for television. So, I mean, I didn't invent these. They were, <laughs> they were in the Swedish budget, sure. but I put them up the line and I jumped on them. And, uh, um, ever afterwards, well, years later, when my mother qualified for free travel, I would tell her, you know, that was your young father. That, yeah, that's that. to me. So, I mean, th again, this is why it was absolutely essential to have you on the series. Yeah, well, and uh, I'm really glad you did it because this is also kind of giving us a picture of from whence you emerged, because essentially yeah. what you were gathering here were the skills that you would later apply uh, at Avalon in terms of your uh, leasing and your work in Latin America and the Caribbean that would, you know, play a, play a massive part in this huge chunk of the business that is aviation that Irish people are at the forefront of. And what that story before this just tells me is that you must have always had an eye or a leaning towards 
the significance and importance of the liberalization of transport or the democratization of transport and accessibility for people to get from one place to the other? Yeah, I mean, let me just give you a one-line picture of, in my mind, how important the aviation finance industry in Ireland is, not just in Ireland, not just in Europe, but globally. There are 20,000 large commercial jets in the world fleet. These are the airplanes that you and, you know, your audience uh, will normally travel in. We're not talking about executive jets. We're not talking about, you know, biplanes. We're talking about aircraft that normally carry between 200 mm. and 500 passengers. That's what, it's what aviation, commercial aviation is all about. Of the 20,000 large jets in the world fleet flying around our skies, nearly 10,000 are leased. That's to say they're not owned by the airlines. They're financed mm -hmm. under leasing structures. And of the 10,000 that are leased, nearly 9,000 are actually leased as Irish-owned Airplanes. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And it's, it's astonishes me that we don't, that every school child in Ireland doesn't know that as yeah. a very proud fact, because, you know, it means that we not alone lead, but we totally dominate the industry worldwide. And that goes back to, obviously, to the leadership of Tony Ryan, who's a genius of tremendous imagination and courage and determination and an extremely proud, not just Irishman, but as you know, Tipperary man. Yeah, so, uh, so let's, let's reverse engineer this story of Tony yeah. spotting you and you coming to a place where, I know you're probably uncomfortable with me mentioning this, but you, you know, you're responsible for leasing more aircraft than maybe anybody Ever yourself, one hundred and eighty. No, 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 I wouldn't say that. One hundred and eighty. But I mean, one hundred and eighty aircraft. I, I, I accepted as, as a very <laughs> nice bit of exaggeration, okay. which I think is well, which I don't deserve. But I'm, I'm, I'm. We all did. I mean, the team that were around Tony were the people with Tony who invented aircraft leasing and changed the world. I mean, the, the our access to air travel owes as much. Uh, to the invention of aviation finance, in particular leasing, as it does to low-cost travel. Mm. And the fact that the average person in this country can, you know, I don't know what the average number is now, fly the average Irish citizen, flies something like five or six times a year, mm. which is, if not more, which is a lot more than most of the, of the experience of most people in other countries. But that owes as much to the way that airplanes are financed today mm. as it does to the invention of um, low-cost travel, which is another part of Tony's uh, legacy, of course, aided by Michael O'Leary. So Tony is the one that allows you to take this big right turn into aviation when he spots yeah. you. But before we get there, there's obviously several years in diplomacy involving yeah. maybe 
you know, the most one of the most significant agreements in the history of the Irish state. You as a key advisor to Gareth Fitzgerald are a big part of the Anglo-Irish agreement. And in recent times, you've mentioned in an article in August of 2019, you mentioned that there were numerous very difficult moments, was the quote that I managed to find, where you were facing a kind of a, an absolute blindness on the part of the British establishment towards Ireland. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, the negotiations and those difficult moments? Yeah, well, if some of your audience, the older members, <laughs> will remember that in the early 80s, we were there was constant chopping and changing in the leadership in politics in Dublin between Charlie Hoy and Gareth Fitzgerald. Now, I, I don't have any political affiliation, believe it or not, even though people know that I'm a very friendly and an admirer of Gareth Fitzgerald's and I've also got on quite well with Mr. Hawley. What happened, Hawley, well, one period when he was asked, I was actually appointed as to a job which was invented, which was the diplomatic advisor to the Taoiseach in 1981. And the Taoiseach at that time was Gareth Fitzgerald. Now, those governments were short-lived and, you know, Charlie came back in, then Gareth came back in. And then Garrett came back in with Dick Spring and they had a large majority. And Thatcher had just come back with a large majority in Britain after the Falklands War episode. And things were very difficult between Dublin and London because the situation in the North was getting out of control. Violence was uh, the dominant event every single day in the news. And the politics was uh, toxic between, you know, the Paisley wing of the DUP and mm. the hardliners on the Republican side and John Young to his best in the middle. Anyway, I was asked to help out and I was lucky, as I have been so often. I created an opening with the top diplomat in Britain was a guy called David Goodall, Sir David Goodall, as they all of their noble titles. And I challenged him. He was the chief advisor to Mrs. Thatcher, along with a man called Lord Armstrong, who also became a good friend. But they were both people who were very concerned about the fact, as they put it themselves, that the only part of the United Kingdom where British soldiers were getting killed was part, as they would call it, of the, U of the UK itself in Northern Ireland. And they persuaded her to take a, a fresh approach. And I was very much involved in that, along with Dermot Nally, who was the head of the, basically the head of the civil service at the time. He was the head of the department of the T-shirt, along with Noel Dorr, Sean Donnellan, and of several others. But I mean, I think that particular connection, which started in a walk that Goodall and I took after lunch in a restaurant, which is the old grey door on Pembroke Street, now something else, Dax or something. And we, um, we walked up and down the canal and read the Patrick Cavanagh's famous poem, which is on, actually on, uh, on a canal seat there. Mm -hmm. And that I sort of, as strongly as I could say, said to him, you are, you have no ideas. The situation is just getting worse. And you're the only, and the, the uh, very part, large part of the minority population are alienated completely 
from the security services, the RUC, the UDR, the British Army, and every day the situation is getting worse and worse. And the only way that we could have any hope of even containing it is if we work together and if um, we uh, have a role there so that the nationalist minority can feel identity with the system of authority. Sure. So he was shocked by this approach and he went back and actually Thatcher, believe it or not, approved the idea that we should start a negotiation on exploring those ideas. So there were, over a period of nearly two years, there were 30, there were the small teams on both sides. We had 35 meetings every kind of month or six weeks, sometimes in government offices, sometimes in country houses around Ireland, around Britain. And eventually we came up with the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985. So, so let me ask, who's at those meetings and well, there what, were, exactly how tense do they become? Well, there were quite, it was on the Irish side, there was a, a small team, basically Dermot Nally, who was head of the department of Taoiseach. There was Noel Dar, Sean Donnellan, myself. On the British side, there was the head of of the cabinet office, Lord Armstrong, also the head of their civil service. And there was David Goodall, who was his deputy, who from the foreign office and the British ambassador in Dublin, who is long gone, unfortunately. And we, um, as I said, we met 35 times in a, I mean, there were kind of secret meetings to be published like that because mm. there were no, there was no publicity about them. And in fact, there were no leaks. Curiously enough, there nearly always are endless leaks from these kind of exercises, but there weren't. At any rate, the, the tension was caused by, in particular, two events, which were uh, it, public and kind of disastrous. One politically disastrous, which was Thatcher at a, pr- a particular can- press conference was asked about her views on the three proposals from the Irish Forum, uh, which was taking place during those years. And they were, of course, a United Ireland, a Confederal Ireland, or a joint authority between Britain and Ireland to govern Northern Ireland. Plus the unmentioned one normally, which is that any other ideas which might help to bring peace and stability. And she's an extreme British nationalist, a unionist, a sort of her habit of speaking was as though she was addressing the readers of the Sun newspaper, if you know what I mean. What do you mean by and, that, exactly? And Talking down? So she said, out, the first thing was out, the second thing was out, and the third thing was out, even though the negotiations were going on in great detail about looking for a solution. So it became as the out, out, out event, and it nearly destroyed Gareth Fitzgerald's T-shirt. Um, obviously, the opposition, which is it's their job to oppose, led by Charlie Hawhey, gave him a terrible drubbing. But he actually knew that it, there were, that this wasn't the, not far from being the end of the road, that the negotiations were quite serious. So they went on and we got a lot of help from the Americans, even from President Reagan, by the way, who, um, more or less forced her to, in a, an address to the U.S. Congress, the joint section of the House and Senate to say that the negotiations were going on and that she was very hopeful they would produce a, a result which would help in Ireland and that indeed did happen. But then the other disastrous event 
was the bright bomb, which uh, nearly killed her and several members of her, her cabinet. In fact, it did kill several friends of hers. And it was blessing of God that she was in the bathroom and not in her bedroom when the bomb went off. And we thought, oh God, this is going to be the end of it. But in fact, to give her due, and um, most people in Ireland don't have very generous thoughts about the woman, that she, instead of calling off the negotiations, she ordered that we continue, and they did. And we got the to the agreement in November 1985. Well, some people will say that, you know, that agreement failed to bring an immediate end to political violence in Northern Ireland. Without it, the Good Friday Agreement... 13 years later would, wouldn't have happened. Did you the reason, I mean, I agree with that. And, and the reason for that was that in the period with Thatcher, up to then with Thatcher and previously with Harold Wilson, you know, who really, he was Labour Prime Minister, who was a disa- disaster for Northern Ireland. Uh, those two governments until then had been just concentrating on security. Mm. And in, in the political divisions in Northern Ireland, the unionists, refused to accept anything, anything, except what they wanted themselves, which was total domination. And that actually put an end to a complete one-sided domination of the situation. And without that, we wouldn't have had any further progress because, you know, the reality is, and people find this difficult, Thatcher actually betrayed the Unionists in the 1985 agreement in the most outrageous way. And many will remember who were around at the time, the, um, you know, in Paisley of those days, roaring in Donegal Square in Belfast, that we will never, never, never accept this. Mm. And but that put an end to a mindset, which was that we will hold all the power and the minority or the representatives or Dublin will never have any say here. So it was an important, a major step actually to what was the, you know, great achievement of um, Bertie Hearn and Tony Blair and indeed uh, John Hume. And by the way, uh, I have to say, Jerry Adams in getting to the, um, and Ian Paisley eventually in getting to the Good Friday Agreement and the St. Andrews, Andrews Agreement. So that was a big part of my life for those years. Massive. Uh, and massive, and a, as I say, a massive turning point in the was. history of the state. Uh, you, you then subsequently find yourself as the youngest UN ambassador in Geneva. And That's right. <laughs> is it? Actually, I, I, I wasn't actually the, the French guy had the same birthday as me of the same year. <laughs> All right. And he went on you to be by a couple of months. Vicheron's number one advisor and Sarkozy's number one advisor. He's <laughs> a great friend of mine. Uh, uh, now, uh, now, the reputation of, of uh, the UN in Geneva and similarly the civil service in Ireland is not great. In fact, my sister no. used to work in the UN in Geneva and she oh, really? said the joke was how many people work in the UN? Half. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, no, I, I'm, I'm afraid I, I would have to sort of kind of identify with your sister's comment. It is a bit depressing. But uh, oddly enough, the UN in Geneva includes, you know, the World Trade Organization, as it is today, which, by the way, was invented by Peter Sutherland and delivered. 
Peter Sutherland, our former attorney general mm. and member of the commission. And we actually managed to get a lot of interesting things on the road, particularly Ireland as, you know, when our turn comes around, uh, we have the presidency of the European Union. And we, in fact, managed to make a lot of progress on trade issues and on human rights issues in the time that Ireland had the presidency. And it was Peter Sutherland who, by the way, at, shortly afterwards, had joined the board of uh, Dennis Pete Aviation, GPA, Tony Ryan's great company. It was Peter who persuaded me to, not persuaded me, I was delighted to be persuaded to uh, try my hand at the private sector. And he arranged for me to be interviewed by Tony Ryan and in Tony's place. And Tony was highly skeptical. And he, uh, he sort of said, ah, you know, you sort of civil service. <laughs> what the hell do you know about the real world and commerce? He <laughs> said those words to you. I did, yeah. And he went on to say, he said, you know, sure, you never sold a calf at Limerick Fair or anything like that. <laughs> so I said, well, I said, uh, when I was seven, I was selling pigs in McCroom Fair for my granny. And that got his attention. <laughs> that counts for something. <laughs> Never, mind more, you know, Never mind the Never mind the Anglo-Irish agreement, you know, yeah. diplomacy and the rest of it. Anyway, I was very lucky to be um, to get uh, this opportunity. I sort of I had a great time. I'd worked for the European Commission. I'd done all kinds of multilateral diplomacy, but I did actually have that doubt in my mind whether I would survive in what you know people in business would call the real world business people who would regard things like diplomacy as being kind of highfalutin nonsense. Uh, but I had that notion that it would be, I'd like to test myself in that different world. So tell me, do Tony gave me that chance. As certain, he certainly did. And as Deck Ryan said to us on his episode, you know, the reputation of the man was uh, nearly... Uh, mythologized. Uh, yeah. He had an aura around him and there was a belief of this tough taskmaster in the Brian Clough sense of things that came up in Deck's interview as well. Tell me your experience of it, because I'd imagine that it took a certain type of character to sustain underneath that kind of leadership. As we're seeing today, the idea of being chewed out of it, let's say, in the workplace is, uh, you know, tantamount to constructive dismissal right away. And yeah. there's a um, belief that that just I, simply you know, should I, never happen. You and, you know, you're very familiar with this code, this uh, reputation, this, I'm going to call it mythology mm. about Tony. Tony was, of course, extremely tough and, you know, extremely determined and a winner. And he didn't have much time, if he has any time, for second place or if there was a sort of a, a deal that was lost in some far corner of the world to a competitor. You know, he really was not terribly sympathetic, putting it mildly. Hmm. I mean, but it all, that all seemed to me to be perfectly sensible. I mean, why do you get into this business if you're not going to try to win? Gotcha. And, you know, and you need to equip yourself as best you can to make sure that you do. 
and he could be, you know, fairly sharp and he could be a bit on the rough side, but he wasn't a tyrant. And I sort of, I disagree with those who kind of paint him in those colors. He was difficult, but if you thought about it, his style and his approach was um, rational. It wasn't irrational. And, and that's the difference between a tyrant and a, and a tough business guy. Yeah. So, no. so uh, what I seem to get from everyone I speak to about the man is that all of it was never personal. It was always about driving standards. Exactly. And I would, I would thoroughly agree with that assessment, by the way. But there were other elements in his kind of makeup and in his whole approach and his, uh, you know, what he brought to the business. First of all, when he wanted to be, he had great charm, particularly with, you know, important customers around the world. Uh, in my case, because I told him and I was really glad that he gave me the chance that I wanted to be involved in Latin America because it was a part of the world that absolutely fascinated me. And, you know, with Tony, I met the uh, characters, and that's the only words to describe their personalities, who owned and ran the biggest airlines in Latin America for years. Some of them, I mean, they ranged from people of great vision, uh, like a, a Brazilian guy called Rolim, who was a very dear friend who died, uh, unfortunately coming to meet me in the Paraguayan mountains and <clears throat> because we were involved in a cultural project together. And, and then there were other guys who were chancers. And in fact, I would say criminals, but who, because of their position, they had come to own airlines, which they had taken hold of by basically by using not just influence, but frankly, uh, criminal uh, resources. Really? So, you know, it, it was kind of hairy stuff, mm. but I have a taste for <laughs> that kind of adventure. And you could see that Tony absolutely loved it. He was, he was used, he was ready for dealing with uh, all kinds of difficult situations. He was uh, fearless, but he was also, and I want to say this because it hasn't been said often enough. Tony was straight and he was absolutely refused to have any involvement with anything which was not ethical. And I can tell you a small story, if I may. Mm -hmm. One of the earliest deals that I was involved in was in Venezuela, a state-owned company called Aeropostal, operated MD-80s around the region, and we had just completed a deal. It was actually most of the negotiation was done by somebody else, but it so happened that I was asked to go and sign the contract for, for delivery. And so I did, and it was, I was, it was to be signed on a Saturday morning on the top floor of the tallest building in Caracas, the capital of uh, Venezuela. And it was, the, I think the event was to take place with television cameras and all the rest of it at noon. And I showed up at about 11 and it, it was, the signing was to be with a minister in the government. And at about 11.30, the head of the airline called me and he said that the minister's private secretary would want to, to talk to me. And so I obviously went along to, uh, to a private room and the guy said to me, um, he said, this is the number of an account in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. He said, 
and we would expect you guys to deposit, I think it was a million and a half US in the, over the next few hours. Now, I never thought about how you would do that on a Saturday, <laughs> but I said to myself, you know, what should I do here? Mm. And I mean, I got a, it was very difficult to make phone calls from Caracas in those days, but I phoned Kilboy, which was Tony's home in Tipperary. And I spoke to him and I told him what the situation was. I was hoping to God, I didn't know much about GTA in those days. I was hoping that Tony would say, you know, just don't have anything to do with this because I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But he said to me, where are you just now? I said, well, I'm on the 32nd floor of this building. He said, have you got your passport? I said, I have. He said, have you got your, your briefcase? I said, what about your stuff? I said, and I said that I've left some stuff back in my room, the hotel in Hilton. He said, no, he said, just walk out, go down, get into the, into the lift, down to the ground floor, jump out, take the first taxi that you find on the street, go to the airport and take an airplane that's going anywhere. It doesn't matter where it's going. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it actually made me so happy. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you, you don't know. Until, until you get on the inner circle, what's going on. And it was, for me, it was a dramatic affirmation of ethical business, which is not an easy thing to maintain in the Latin America of those days. It's got actually a lot better since then. But um, that was an example of Tony's uh, decision-making and his very high standards. And I, you know, hugely appreciate it, I've got to say to you. Is that the so, is that the only time that you were ever presented with a dilemma like that, or no, you? Uh, no, no, it, ha it happened on other occasions. But you see, the problem was that that was within, I think, two or three months of my joining GPA. Gotcha. And I was found myself in the situation, and I wasn't entirely clear as to what the right thing to do. Who yeah. was and what the, the green is grass? Yes, yeah. it was because you have occasionally there are grey areas. As you know very well. Yeah. And how you deal with the gray area, et cetera. No, it's happened on subsequent occasions, but that particular experience prepared me for anything else that happened ever since. And I'm happy to say that I've managed to do a lot of deals in Latin America, an area of the world that I find very exciting and interesting, still involved there, but I've never had to, you know, store the standard. And when you say gray areas, I have to ask the question, what do you mean by gray areas? Well, you see, it depends. To give you a very practical issue, right? When you are delivering an airplane, for example, let's say in Brazil, and you need an engine because the engine has run out or because it, there's been a problem, uh, mm -hmm. an engineering problem, then you have to import an engine so as to meet the requirements of the airplane, which is, it needs two engines or it needs four engines. It's not going to fly on one <laughs> or on three, right? Yeah, gotcha. And so that engine, you, you need to get it on the wing as quickly as possible. And that means that you have to get it through customs. Now, getting anything through customs in these countries, particularly in those days, it's a bit better, but there are still problems. But Getting 
a, a piece of equipment like a jet aircraft engine through customs can take three weeks. You're going to lose the deal. Mm. And, you know, in practice, this isn't a big bribe. It's not a question of making somebody rich. But what tends to happen is your agent, the person who works for you and who deals whether it's a lawyer or a, a customs broker or whatever, and they deal with the situation. And th there needs sometimes a small, a modest inducement will help to make sure that your engine comes to the top of the line. Like and that, not like fast there track for, boarding. Sitting there for months. Yeah. So the, that's a gray area. Mm, yeah. And, you know, your duty to your customer, your duty to your shareholders is to get the engine onto that airplane. And, you know, you're not talking about giving somebody millions, but you're talking about, you know, a, a, a modest inducement, which makes that happen. And it's entirely legal and it's accepted even under, you know, WTO standards that a facilitating payment, I think it's called in the trade, is permissible. And I certainly have been involved in instances where we've had to do stuff like that. But I haven't got the slightest problem with my conscience because it's, first of all, it's actually within the law, but it's, uh, it's, um, it's a kind of, it's, if you couldn't do that, you know, actually you couldn't do business. It's as simple as that. So there are gray areas that there, there, none of them are flagrant or outrageous, of course we wouldn't do that in any sense, but I have, um, I've had that experience and it's normal in the, in the trade. Well, let me yeah. ask you this question, Mick, because, you know, you're, uh, you're aware that a lot of business people, uh, listen to Irishman abroad and, uh, yeah. are, you know, will, will keenly listen to this episode, just like they did the Alan Joyce one and the Deck Ryan one, because sure. you yourself have been involved in the financing of more than 180 aircraft. That's, worth more than six billion US dollars when you add it all up. You've been involved in negotiations, not only on a diplomatic level for things like the Anglo-Irish Agreement and in the UN, but you know, you've just spoken to a number more people than would seem humanly possible across your lifetime in terms of negotiation, getting yeah. deals done. What is your understanding of the key to that success? Like, it seems like a, a silly question on the one hand, because there's obviously no one key. No, I don't think it's a silly question at all. And I don't have the whole answer. Of course I don't. But I can, I can give you a, at least a part of my own conviction as to what helps and what has helped. Okay. And some of this may not be so obvious immediately to all of your audience. But I have absolutely convinced that it's right. There's an advantage in being Irish. And it's not, you know, in the kind of way that occasionally fellas boast in pubs and stuff like that. It is a fact. There's, there's a both a positive and a kind of like a meritorious level of advantage in being uh, uh, one of our tribe, if we may so describe it. I can say to you that in the region of Latin America, where I have spent, you know, now 25 years in, in this trade, when I walk in the door and if I, particularly if I know 
the people I'm dealing with. And it's you, we, we deal at the top in the, the C-suite or whatever you want to call it of the airline industry, because, you know, we have the reputation and we get in to the top layer of the organization. When an Irishman, and I'm not saying that I'm unique because I'm not, but an Irishman walks in there, he has an advantage, which is, first of all, and I say this with great respect to my American and British colleagues, I love the United States and many friends of Britain. We are immediately far more welcome than they are. You may find that strange, but I have, it's a fact which is not alone have I experienced it time out of number, but I have never experienced the opposite. I've never felt at a disadvantage to a, you know, a US competitor or a British competitor or a French competitor. On the contrary, there is a feeling that, you know, we're not going to come and tell them what to think, how to play the business or take that sort of know-all approach, which it's unfortunately is part of their DNA. And it comes from history. It comes from the past. It comes from culture. Happily, we don't have that mentality. And when I'm talking to a, a guy in Peru or a fellow in Southern Argentina or Chile or somewhere, Mexico, he quickly realizes that I don't have that kind of domineering teach you how to do your business attitude. And it gives us a huge advantage because we actually don't think that way. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that our competitors from these more <laughs> established countries, they can't help us. They can't. They help. do think that way. So I think that's the number one. That's the number one that we have. Okay, so the challenge that a lot of people would find in negotiation is, you know, meeting a brick wall. I mean, whether you're married or dealing with your children, you'll know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, sure. Where it feels I like am indeed. Uh, <laughs> never the twain shall meet. We hold, I hold this view, you hold that view. We're never going to agree on this. And it can feel like this is a dead loss. You've certainly encountered that time and time again. Can you tell me what tends to be the bridge. It can't just be being Irish. No, no, it's, but it's, that is definitely a very considerable part of the bridge. Mm. The, the other thing which includes is also an Irish feature, I believe, is that I have found working with, you know, colleagues and the rest of it, that in commercial world, we, I'm speaking of Irish business guys and girls, mm -hmm. it's very important to add that, are patient, respectful of the other person, as I started to say earlier, but also there is, we have a talent for negotiation. It's an Irish thing. Not all Irish people have it, of course, but you know yourself from all the business people that you encounter that there is a style. Mm. Which, and it's, in, it's, it's, it involves sticking around. And I mean, uh, and a, a small example. Okay. You're trying to, to conclude a deal. And I'm not going to give away any trade secrets here. Your <laughs> great program, but you find that your, your competitor is comes to town for a day, right? And. You're either already there or you come in around the same time, but your client 
prospective client realizes quickly that you're there and you and your colleagues are sticking around and the other fellow goes off home and disappears for several days. This is a small example, mm. but I've often found that it actually can be the secret of winning. I should say here, I mean, for ex as you know, when I went to work for GPA, I found myself in charge of Latin America, dealing with stuff I didn't know anything about. And I found that they had assigned to me a, a young man from Ennis called Donald Slattery, and I was Donald's boss for a couple of years. God knows how we both survived that, but we did <laughs> very happily. Now, between us, we would go to, I mentioned Caracas. We could go to um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and we would just stay around and make sure that they knew we were there every single day and that we were open mm -hmm. to every single argument they could throw at us. Mm-hmm. And we would find, come back with a, a, a different angle, but one which addressed the issue, which they were obviously focused on usually as price, but you found other ways of dealing with price by other issues in and around the delivery of an airplane. And I mean, I think that we are very good at that. And you know, when Tony Ryan said to me, you never sold a a calf at Limerick Fair, and I told him I was selling bonnets or little pigs <laughs> in McCroom. You actually, that's something that we have, and it's in our DNA. And most of us, I'm sure you would agree, if you look back into family history, most of us come from the land, from agriculture. And uh, some people don't want to be reminded of that. But it's a fact that people who are in agriculture live by their wits, they live by negotiation, by uh, trading. So it's a simple fact, uh, and it's a standout fact, so far as I'm concerned, that we have it in our blood. Well, my final question then, Mick, that's a fantastic way to answer the one that I really, I didn't know where you were going to go with it, but it, it really does make sense. I mean, my own family come from agriculture as well, and there is an entrepreneurism to it. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah. That is, like you say, it's in the blood. It's understood. Yeah. Every, in the same way as when uh, I meet people in England here and I tell them my father used to be a horse trainer, they don't understand that every Irish person is connected oh, to horse sure. racing in some way, shape or form. My final, Everyone is an aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> my, my final question relates to something that you have spoken about publicly, and that is the Brexit negotiations and the future of you know, this trading partnership that is the EU. You're someone who's better qualified than anyone we've ever had on the show to talk about the future of uh, this as a trade partnership negotiator professionally for many, many years. You saw this coming, first of all. You saw uh, Boris's, the way that he made the exit occur take place. What do you see coming now? Well, it's very easy to say the obvious. And the obvious here is that Boris is at it again, and they're looking at, because it's a populist thing to do in Britain, and they're looking at a negotiating set of tactics which would only lead to some kind of falling off the cliff in the end. I think Boris is an interesting character. He is in charge, which was not the case with Mrs. May. 
he has a huge majority. Uh, you may not like his personality. You may be certain historical things are always churning around for Irishmen when they're dealing with British. But we can't afford to think like that. We have to play our hat. We've played it very well, I believe. I mean, Little Ireland, which is probably the wrong way to describe ourselves in terms of mental uh, approach, but Ireland has been a hugely important player in the negotiation of the backstop, helped enormously by the um, European Commission, by the Germans, by the French, by the Eastern European member states of the European Commission. And that's all. That hasn't just fallen out of the sky. That actually has been achieved by hard work. And I have to pay a tribute to my old firm, the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs. They've done a very, very good job, I have to say. But they're being called on to put their boots on again and get going. And I believe that with the sort of teamwork approach, which we have shown in Brussels, and the response that we've got from around the 27 member states that Boris has experienced this himself, he backed down. And, you know, that's why we have got the current protocol, which is, you know, was quite an achievement. I believe I'm very confident that with the team working together, this sounds a bit kind of like easy good news and it certainly has not been uh, it's, it's not something we can say has happened but i think that we have we have the approach we have the resources and we have the intelligent people working for us on the ground for the country and for us in the european commission and in the other member states i believe that it will be in the interest of boris to do what he has already done, which is when it comes to the hard strokes, he will do a deal. And I think it'll be a good one for us. Well, Mick, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I also want to wish you the very best of luck with the next chapter. I wouldn't know what you might do next, but I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing about it. And if people want to uh, read more of Mick's work, he is, of course, an author of Scandal and Courage, The Lives of Eliza Lynch. That's still available and made this incredible documentary, Pioneers of Aviation. And I urge you to go and seek that out. Mick Lillis, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on The Flying Irishman. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this hugely. And you are a great interviewer. Thank you. Thanks, Mick. Appreciate it. A huge thank you to Mick Lillis for taking the time to do this episode. What a gent and what a collection of stories he had to tell. Next week and in our next episode of The Flying Irishman, I'm joined by Julie Garland, who is, I guess, at the forefront of unmanned flight in Ireland. If you want to hear her story in her previous life before she entered aviation, subscribe, sign up, get these episodes. They're all here for you to enjoy as a unit. Available on all platforms wherever you're listening now. Please give us a rating, a comment, a subscription. It all helps and spread the word about the Flying Irishman.
Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. Sound production, editing, and research by Jarlot Regan. Special thanks to Declan Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast.